Good morning, saints. It is good to be with you this morning. I want to begin just by uh, expressing thanks from the recipients of our coat drive. Uh, The cold is just a little bit ridiculous, and we're looking forward to it warming up at least a little bit, up to freezing maybe. But uh, there was a van full of coats that were joyfully received by some Uh, local refugees in our area, so they wanted to say thank you specifically for that. I take you across town to Gaithersburg for a moment. Uh, My friend Tony Cyrus uh, is a really good friend of mine, and he was the second from your right, I believe. He was formally installed as the pastor of his church. He's been serving in that capacity for a bit, but there was a wonderful service on Saturday, and uh, it was just... Three hours never passed so quickly, to be honest. Just a few pictures towards the end of the service after the congregational affirmation. Um, It was just good to see my friend affirmed in that way. This next one is the previous pastor uh, giving the final charge to Tony. Uh, The next, there we go. And uh, it's just so nice to see. Um, all of this unfold across the street. And very end, a bunch of local pastors who were there uh, just gathered around to lay hands on him. So we praise the Lord for the godly Christian leaders that he has all throughout the area. Um, we are not alone in our intent and desire to serve people. I'm thankful for Tony, who loves the Lord. He loves his word and he loves people so very well. So last week, we looked at God's promises in Scripture. We discussed how to best discern uh, when we see a statement or a promise in Scripture, how to read our Bibles in such a way that we can quickly understand if maybe a promise that is given is designed to stay with the people who received it or if it's across the board. This is the verse that we use as our little test case. Because it will be helpful in today's message, I would just like to briefly recap uh, the three principles we talked about last week in this process. Uh, So let's briefly recap some of the basic things that we talked about last week to get the most out of our Bible reading because it will definitely come into play this morning. So the first question we always want to ask is, what was the original message of the original author to the original audience. What was going on there? Who is the original author? Who is the person writing this? Who are the people receiving it? What are cultural issues that we can be aware of? Remember, everything in your Bible is at least 2,000 years prior to today. And it wasn't written in the United States either. What was the original setting And specifically, what was the occasion of the writing? Were there problems, challenges? Was there sin to be addressed with this group of people? Was there a specific teaching that maybe Paul or someone else wanted them to hear? And the final step, as we're reading, is to build a bridge from the then and there to the here and now. 21st century, in our case, the United States. 
though the exact circumstances might be a little bit different, what are truths that God wants us to know from this? So let's take these principles and frame our new sermon series in the book of Galatians. We're going to spend some time in the weeks and months to come in the book of Galatians. Galatians is in your New Testament. It's an epistle, if you will. It's a letter. It has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said Galatians is his Catherine von Bora because he is wedded to it. The truth in the book of Galatians so permeated Martin Luther's thinking, he began to see the gospel clearly as opposed to what he saw around him. The dominant theme in this book that you cannot escape, you cannot avoid, is that salvation is by the grace of God through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So this morning, I just want to frame this study for us, just kind of help us get our bearings. So let's take a look briefly at the original context. To whom was Paul writing? Shocker. He was writing to the Galatians. Galatia was an area that is in modern day Turkey. Jews that had left and Gentiles as well. Now here's the thing. In scholarly circles, there's a very in Galatia there was there was a northern part and a southern part. And it's actually really difficult to know exactly to whom Paul is writing. It's not terribly consequential. But there were two distinct parts of Galatia. There's lots of debate in some circles about was he writing to the northern part or to the southern part, which was a Roman province, which is the view that I take. But we're going to let the scholars duke that little detail out, which is somewhat inconsequential. But I'd like to give you a perspective on the area from my own personal travels to Turkey. You will not find this in the theological works, but I will tell you this. In this part of the world, it is always, always kebab time. Always. A little wider view of that same picture because, yes, I did take more than one. Just as in Kazakhstan, there are lots, everywhere you go on the street, there's someone who is preparing and offering for you delicious grilled meat. Now, back to more serious matters. Who is the author of this book? Without consequence, without, I'm sorry, without controversy, this was the Apostle Paul. It's stated very obviously and no one has any issues with that. This was most likely Paul's earliest letter. We call them epistles in the New Testament. This is likely Paul's first and earliest letter from the letters that we have in your New Testament. 
Now to the meat of the matter. No pun intended, but maybe. What problem or what was Paul addressing specifically? I want you to imagine for a moment the book of Acts. The church is born, Acts chapter 2. The church, the gospel, its seed is in Jerusalem. It's a Jewish thing. In fact, believers in the book of Acts were called followers of the little Jewish sect, the way. But the gospel, as you travel through the book of Acts, the gospel begins to spread when persecution is not just any longer for the apostles or the church leaders, but they were coming for every regular Christian in Jerusalem. And that caused many believers to leave Jerusalem. And as they left, they brought the gospel with them because it says they could not stop talking about the goodness of God, about the gospel, wherever they went. And so the gospel is now being established through personal testimony and obviously through the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. And Galatia was an area in which the gospel was established, a church a gathering of believers, multiple churches, they were established in Galatia and they received the good news with such joy. I mean, how can you not? The gospel, the good news, salvation actually is not as the result of your works. It's not up to you. But it is a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. So the gospel in this part of the world begins to thrive. The church is growing. There's great joy. Now let me tell you something from your own personal experience. When you endeavor and resolve to follow God, to be obedient to Him, you will naturally and necessarily and most often face Opposition. The devil does not like a thriving, growing Christian. And so as the gospel settles in this area called Galatia, there is very soon thereafter demonic opposition. And this opposition would strike at the very core of the gospel. Enter the Judaizers. The Judaizers were a sect. Some would say they were a part of the Pharisees. They came under false pretenses. They showed up in Galatia, and trust me, they were other places as well. These were Jews in their heart of hearts. And they lied and they said that they were sent by some of the apostles. 
their message essentially was this, hang on, hang on. This Jesus fellow, he's nice. We like a lot of what he stands for. But what are you doing saying that you can be saved apart from Moses and obeying the law? What are you thinking? And furthermore, what are you thinking? Having the non-Jews be a part of our little party. We are the special people. We're better than the rest. We don't, we don't associate with non-Jews. What are you doing bringing them in as well and then having the audacity to say that they do not need to keep the law of Moses in order to be in the good graces of God? To which the question is asked, is it Christ alone or is it Christ and Moses? What is the relationship of the Christian to the law of Moses? So I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, if you're able to, and we're going to take a little stroll through the book of Acts. Again, my goal this morning is to kind of set the background, set the stage for this series The book of Acts is a beautiful, beautiful, it captures the growth of the church. As I said, it begins in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 and 5. The apostles pay a heavy price for preaching Christ. They are beat up, roughed up, and then told to never again talk about this guy, Jesus. Peter said, thank you very much. And it says they immediately, when they left, with bruises on their back, they immediately went out and kept preaching Jesus. And they kept preaching. I love how Luke captures it. He says every single day they spoke about Christ. How can you not? So the gospel begins to spread. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel settles in Samaria. Samaritans, as you know, were kind of half Jew, half Gentile. The Jews hated the Samarians. And they kind of felt the same way in return as well. Acts chapter 10. Now the Gentiles. This is crazy. What many thought was a Jew-only club is now being extended to everyone. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. So, back to the book of Acts. In chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius, you might recall Peter's vision, Peter tells the Lord, I could never do what you're asking me to do because I'm a good, God-fearing Jew. You're asking me to go over and, you know, talk to Gentiles. Well, the Lord clears that up. Peter goes. He preaches the gospel. It's the most remarkable, remarkable account. As he is preaching... They are believing. 
as he is preaching, the spirit is falling on them just as he did the Jews. In fact, same with the Samaritans as well. So I would like you to look at chapter 11, because after this takes place, this is causing no small stir. That the Galatians are, that the, I'm sorry, the Gentiles are a part of God's work as well. Remember, this had not really been the case before. I mean, for those few Gentiles that wanted to convert in, I mean, there were elaborate things in place. They had to be baptized and so forth. But now, the work of God, the hand of God, was on non-Jews as well as Jews. So Peter goes back and he reports this to the leaders in Jerusalem. Peter talks about the vision that he had received and how he tried to deny it. Verse 8. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He's saying, Lord, what are you asking me to do to go over to these Gentiles? But he said, the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. I am doing a new thing. And it's not as if, if you look hard enough in the Old Testament, you can't see this was coming. But verse 18, after he had said all of these things, I love their response. When they heard these things, they fell silent. This is the leaders in Jerusalem, the Christian leaders. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They had nothing to say. No argument. And they gave glory to God because the Lord was at work in the hearts and in the lives of Gentiles as well as Jews. Remember, this is a really big deal. Flip over or scroll just a couple chapters over to chapter 15. This necessitated a council. Well, we've got to talk about this in Jerusalem. We call this the Jerusalem Council. This is a very important chapter in the book of Acts because the Jewish church, who were used to being the people of God, now turned over the shoulder and, well, the Gentiles have the exact same status as them. Well, what do we do with all of this? Acts chapter 15, I like to highlight just a few verses. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So do you see what's happening here? There were some, these are not the Christian leaders, there are some who are saying, well, this is great, add Jesus, but don't take away Moses. If we're going to be right with God, we've got to do it by the skin of our teeth. We've got to work as hard as we can. Verse 5. 
But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Some habits die hard. Verse 10. The response to that, I'm just giving you a high-level review. Now, therefore, verse 10, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, watch that. What are they saying? You guys are out of your mind. We've been trying this for centuries. We failed miserably. It doesn't work. Speaking about the Gentile Christians. But, in contrast, we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Just, just as they will. Here are the Jewish, the first Christian leaders Thinking in a right mind. You guys are nuts. The gospel is the most beautiful thing on earth. We believe, verse 11, that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And get this. There's no distinction between us and them. We are not better than them. We are not inherently more righteous. I mean, hello, have you read your Old Testament, the history? We never got it right. Verse 19, the conclusion. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Praise the Lord for anyone responding to the gospel. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from the blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The conclusion was simply this. Guys, stop it. We are saved by grace through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Keep things simple. Endeavor to follow the Lord Turn away from sin, say no to lust, all of those things. But we're not going to take the entirety of the law of Moses and put it around their neck because that was never the intention of it. So this is Galatia. It was becoming a mess. This beautiful new work of God. A church, church is being planted Christians, Jew and Gentile, joyfully serving the Lord together. We now have the riffraff coming in and sowing discord and preaching untruth. So what are the major themes in Galatia? So let me give you a small handful. The dominant theme is salvation by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, plus nothing. 
That's it. If you're in, if you wouldn't mind turning to Galatians, I just want to highlight a few verses before we launch into it next week. Galatians chapter 1. I want you to look at, well, we'll read the first four verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So right there, first sentence, hi, how you doing? The resurrection. That's it. And the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Never overlook these salutations. They're the same in every letter, and they mean it. Grace and peace to you. Verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right there. Right out of the right out the door. Right there. The gospel. Now I want to tell you something. Society and culture in every generation will try to fix the problems that are right in front of them. And we do appreciate, you know, effort on that end. Sometimes they're helpful, usually they're not. But I want to tell you something. And please don't ever forget this. The problem that we face is not X, Y, and Z. Just name the vices in culture. The problem is that we need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That is the problem. That is the emphasis of every single book in your New Testament. Do not stray from it. Do not water it down. Do not go around it. Do not slip it in while no one's looking. It is the problem, and Christ is the provision. He is the solution. Chapter 4. We spent some time last month talking about Advent and why Christians in every generation have celebrated Advent, the coming of Christ. Look at, uh, where are we? Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, let that soak in, in God's time, At just the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Now, can I just point out something that you need to see in God's word? You will find what seem to be unnecessary and even ridiculous statements. His son was born of a woman. Anybody who's not? Why do we have to say that? 
Well, because Jesus is the son of God. He's not like anyone who has ever come before him nor after. So the Bible actually has to say these things because there's a balance. He was fully God. He was fully man. But oh, at just the right time, he came. Verse 5. So we could all get along. So we could be happy. So we could fix our problems. No. He came to speak and to and address the most pressing matter of any human being. He came for the purpose to redeem those who were under the law. Those who all their lives saw the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, his perfect standard, and in any moment of lucidity and sanity said, I am nowhere near that. God help me. I am not doing well today keeping God's law. Nor have I been for the last as long as I can remember. He came that we might receive adoption as sons. That is a legal status. That we would be supernaturally adopted into his family. This has zero to do with your ethnicity, with your social status, with your economic status, with any of your accomplishments. That is the beauty And that is the power of the gospel. I would like to highlight one bit of irony and maybe humor as well. We briefly said in the beginning that the author of this letter was Paul. Who is Paul? Oh, that's right. Paul was the Jewish Pharisee who hated the gospel, who hated Christians, who did everything he could to harass and stop them, who gained special permission to even go outside of Israel to stop this thing called the church, the gospel. Didn't work out too well for him. But I want you to see the irony of the book of Galatians. The one who would call out this heresy is the very one who promoted it with everything in his being only years before. Number two, theme. Legalism. In your Christian life, in your church experience, have you ever been made to feel that you are less than if you're not performing the way that you should? Have you ever been made to feel guilty for doing things or not doing things that aren't explicit in Scripture? Have you lived your life with a heavy weight of guilt and even shame? I could go right on down the list. Because we all know them. The church list. You don't do this, you don't do that. Or you do this, or you don't. If you're a real Christian, you're going to act in a certain way. Now, some of that is true, and we need to hear it sometimes. Don't get me wrong. 
But if our entire Christian life is about my performance and how well I'm doing and am I living up to the standard of what has been set arbitrarily around me, you need to know the forefathers of that line of thought. They're called the Judaizers. You will find in the book of Galatians the strongest language from the Apostle Paul. The language that Paul uses, I mean, we're in for a bit of a ride here. The language that Paul uses to denounce that is remarkable. There is no middle ground. Yes, as Christians, obviously, we are called to live a life that is a life pursuing holiness. But sometimes the rules become how we live our life. Number three, in contradistinction to legalism, freedom and liberty in Christ. This is connected to the legalism in that it is the antidote to that. You see, in every generation, there it is just human nature. Somehow, some way, we are going to make this happen. We are going to contribute. We are going to work hard so maybe one day God will love us and accept us. We'll do our best and we hope on that day everything will get weighed out. Okay, you're in. You tried your best. What does Christian freedom mean? It means this. That we are no longer living our lives, leading our lives, being led by guilt. And nor is shame what we think of day in and day out. It's natural, but that's not the gospel. I wouldn't call that good news if I was still living by guilt and controlled by shame. But the gospel brings something completely different. Our relationship to the Holy Spirit is we heed his conviction, which he is faithful to do, but he will never shame you and he will never make you feel guilty. Because the scripture says plainly, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no condemnation. Do we believe it? This is why. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and we need to be reminded day in and day out because it's so natural to go back to the old way. So I'd like to present this as a highlight verse for this series. Galatians chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. 
and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Know the gospel. Know the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel is liberty. It's freedom. It's beautiful. And in light of the gospel, the scripture says we ought to live a life that is upright. This is not a license to sin, but rather to serve God, to love him, to obey him out of gladness and gratitude for what he has done for us. Literally, this verse says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So let's wrap up. A couple things I'd like to point out. If you're still in Galatians, I want to highlight something in chapter 2. Because while this is a letter that is telling us the gospel, sometimes we can become so focused on this that we neglect the very other things that the Lord does call us to. I just want to highlight one verse. This is one verse, chapter 2, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Do not let this series be merely head knowledge. The love of God, the grace of God, it inspires us, it moves us to do good works. Not because we're trying to make our way in, but because we are in because of Christ. We should be the busiest people on earth ready to do good. And it hits so well when we do it because he loves us. And you know that because you've probably been on the, on the receiving end of someone doing something for you with a moan and a groan. Here you go. Let me help you. It doesn't help. To be very clear, the question about do the promises and principles apply to us? This is an epistle in the New Testament. It's all about us. It's all about the gospel. We might take some specifics and apply them to today, but everything you read here it's applicable for us. We will learn about the fruit of the Spirit and we'll learn how to walk in the Spirit. Let's pray together. The gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we can even in part behold your glory because of the gospel. Thank you that we can boldly come to your throne of grace in our time of need, which is all the time. Thank you for the access that we have to you because of Christ. Thank you for the power and the simplicity of the gospel. Oh, Lord, help us as we engage this letter to be informed and reminded of the freedom and the liberty that we have in Christ to love you, to love our neighbor, to turn away from sin. 
knowing that we are fully accepted, that we are fully adopted into your family, knowing that we are heirs of your precious promises, knowing that we are united with Christ, knowing that we are co-heirs with Christ. Fill us with joy. Break the chains. Take the bad thinking in our lives and, and replace it with your truth. Lord, we pray if there's but one person here today who is still trying to white-knuckle it. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation in which they bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing that he died for sinners. That he is your provision And we have but to turn to him in repentance and faith and trust him alone for the forgiveness of sins and for salvation. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.